I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is the Al and Lingy Show. Brilliant tap work, Gresham curling, curling, magnificent all round. Oh, this is just a leap by Paddy Ryder. Stokes down low, Corey to Ling, and then Ling goes bang. And the captain, as he did last week from about there, kicks the goal. Inspirational all-round, Neil Danaher's big freeze sets the tone and Collingwood produces a superb display against Melbourne, a team that might not be any longer the only team that can win the Premiership. Fremantle superb, Brisbane as well. Brisbane going to the top of the table and a frustrated first pick from North Melbourne cops a big whack from the MRO. There's a lot to take you through on the Alan Lingy Show. Cameron Ling. Welcome to you, mate. That must have been a very special occasion you were part of at the MCG for Queen's birthday. No, thanks, Al. Great to be with you. And yeah, what a day to be involved in. Uh, the, the feeling around the MCG, the sea of blue of the beanies everywhere and the fun of the slide and the, and the big freeze, but knowing that within that fun is, is a really important cause and an inspirational man and a, and a wonderful family as well. And um, such a great spirit around that day. And then two teams who, Collingwood playing some terrific footy, Melbourne struggling a little bit, were intrigued as to what was, what was going to happen. And we got a ripping game of footy as well. Um, so it was just enjoyable all round. Great There's footy, a- great day, great cause. Fair bit to work through with Melbourne, I reckon, given the off-field events. Now three consecutive losses as well. They head to the bye with a few... Questions, a few issues to resolve. They've had some injuries across the way as well, but they're not humming like they were. It was only a month ago. They looked like they were absolutely unstoppable. Just write them off now as as the Premiership winner. We know seasons can turn on their heads and it seems to be a little for Melbourne. Obviously, we need to deep dive into Collingwood. Craig McRae and his influence on that team. And he's got some good support around him with Justin Lepich and also Brendan Bolton, who've coached their own teams as well, Lingy. But um, firstly... You're number one down the slide. You've done it. You've been part of it and very proudly have the beanie to show. What, number 29 were you? Is that right? Uh, 21, I was lucky 21, enough 21. to be. Uh, yeah, I've got the special beanie. Um, it, was, uh, you know, it was a great day to be involved in um, a few years ago now, but so much fun to, to do it. It's freezing cold. Those looks on the faces of the sliders, they're not fake. That's shock. Actually, when you first hit the water, you don't feel anything. It, it's still fine. And then you hit the bottom and you come up and then this just rising, burning sensation of the freeze hits you and you get the shock. Great to be involved in, but how good were the costumes? Brilliant. Oh, I loved it. Or well, Amish Blake, uh, just uh, number one as Elsa or maybe... Uh, uh, mate, I have to say, Terry Danaher as Crocodile oh, yes. Dundee was absolutely <laughs> perfect. I'm a massive TD fan. I think he's a great character. And he, he could not have done, Roger the Crocodile, everything that accompanied it. <laughs> and special mention to David Neitz, who I thought looked so good 
as William Wallace going down the slide as well. Uh, Nick Rewald, I think, still holds the mantle, doesn't he, for probably the best costume. You were very good as Ronald McDonald, but had some beauties today. Yeah, hard to top Rui with um, with Freddie Mercury. Mercury, he he lent into it too. He didn't. Uh, if you went half-hearted there, you could have looked a bit silly. But he went all the way and was superb. Um, I think the fact that everybody does get right into it shows how much they love being involved in the day. I mean, yeah, Ash Ash Barty's um, one of the greatest tennis players ever, and, and retired as the number one in the world and the Wimbledon champ and the Aussie Open champ and all that. And she was just pumped to be there and be part of the day and. It shows how spectacular it is. Justin Langer there, one of the, the legends of Australian cricket. Um, so the, the, they all know how special it is. They all know how important it is and, uh, and they get right in the spirit. So, no, I loved it, Al. And we were treated to a, um, a fantastic game as well. Yeah, I mean, it is. there's the occasion and that is obviously a key part of the day with all the blue beanies and 76,000 there at the MCG. And the match itself has always been a marquee match, Lingy. And it really produced today, didn't it? Melbourne got out to a significant enough lead that you thought they would run away with the game. But Collingwood, just this belief that they have and the way they move the ball now under Craig McRae as well, the way they look to score and move it quickly and directly, they were exciting. And they have some young players who are starting to do some damage for them as well. That, that was an outstanding performance from Collingwood today, I thought. It really was, Al. You're right. Two points I want to make, though, and I'll start with Collingwood because they were the victors and, and they deserve it. I loved, after the game on Channel 7, Taylor Adams interviewed, said at one stage, Craig McRae on the bench turned to his players and had a little crack and said, guys, this is boring. I don't want to watch like, This is boring footy, saying that they were too safe for their ball movement. He wanted them to be more daring. I love that from the coach. How good is that? Like in a huge game, massive stakes, massive crowd, it's the marquee game. Everyone's at home watching and he's just urging his young team to take the game on more. To Forget about the fact you're playing the reigning champs. Be more adventurous. I love that as a message from Craig McRae. He's doing a superb job. A little bit later on, Al, I want to get to um, a bit of a debate around who's been the coach of the year. Yeah. He's one who's going to be in that discussion. But Melbourne, you said they got out to a big lead. Is that just the nagging concern for Melbourne? Is they are superb defensively, and Stephen May coming back in will assist that. They are brilliant in the midfield, gone, Oliver Petrarca. But even before these three losses, they don't pile the goals on. They were coming into that run, I think, ranked ninth in the competition in attack and now probably slipped a little bit lower than that. So even when in the second term today it felt like they were dominating the game. It was completely on their terms. I looked up at the scoreboard, and it was maybe 22, maybe 25 points. I thought, oh, hang on a second. It feels like it's 45 points, but it's not. They're not slamming the door on opposition because they don't score freely. Ben Brown's still struggling a bit. Luke Jackson, for all his potential, and he's, and he's going to be incredible. He's only going at half a goal a game, not even one goal a game, just half. Cosie Pickett's kind of dangerous but not ending up with a bag Bailey Fritsch was really well held today he's been their leading goal scorer you know how they find that extra half a goal a game from maybe three or four players could be the difference between them just being okay attacking and and being gettable at all times or blowing teams off the park so in each of their three losses now Al Frio Sydney and today they've dominated periods of 
the first half, but they haven't had the opposition going into halftime thinking, oh, we're gone, we're done. It's 50 points the margin. We're, we're, we're finished. I reckon every, every one of those games, the opposition teams have gone in halftime thinking, hey, we're going okay here. Hey, we're still in this Hanging game. Hanging it out. Yeah, yep. we, we, we can do this. Look at the scoreboard. It's only 20-odd points. And then the third quarter's happened and, and teams have been able to flip the flip it completely onto the demon. So that's the nagging concern for me, how easily they can score and they're not at the moment. That that connection from mid to forward and that forward line's not functioning fully. So that's where teams think they're gettable. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. Their, their team, their performances across last year relied so heavily on defence as much as they had some potency forward. Fritch had an outstanding year. They were getting goals from the midfielders as well, weren't they? But they, they didn't have that power forward who was capable of kicking five, six goals. It was that mid-sized forward in Bailey Fritch who might perform that role and maybe Brown would pop up from time to time and Wiedemann when he was playing. So that has been a bit of an ongoing issue. And now they're up against teams who are playing proactive football, perhaps in a way that they weren't before as well, Lingy. There seems to me to be... More emphasis from some teams. Carlton, I look at, I look at Collingwood in the way that they're playing. They're playing bold footy. Hawthorne does it. They're at a far different stage of their development, but they are looking to take the game on and they're looking to score and they want to be tight as they can in defence and not get scored on on turnover. But they do have an emphasis on, on scoring and, and perhaps that's a bit of a shift from what we've seen in the last sort of four or five years around defence being king all the time. Yeah, and, and, and it's a great shift, I reckon, personally, because I've always said this. There is nothing... So, number one, the most intimidating thing about coming up against a great team is how good they are in the contest, how physical they are, how long they can sustain that physicality to win the ball and also put pressure on you. Okay, so park that. The next most intimidating thing coming up against an opposition is how they can smash you on the scoreboard. When we used to have those great clashes with Hawthorne, there was the fear factor that what if Buddy kicks five in a quarter? You know, what if Ruffy gets going and kicks, he kicks three or four and Buddy kicks three or four, all of a sudden we're seven or eight goals down. You genuinely fear that. So you know you have to be right on the edge. And if they get going, you get scared. We had that. Geelong, we were intimidating because we could destroy teams. The great Brisbane teams, the same. I reckon when Richmond got on a roll, they could score really heavily. They're, they're fantastic teams. So... That is that is just soul-sapping for an opposition when it's only 10 minutes where the game shifted to the good team's favour, but they kick six goals in that 10 minutes. You're like, oh, God, this game's gone. Bang, yeah. They, they don't have that, but if you can do that back to them or, you know, these teams like Carlton and Collingwood and, and I think Freeman will do it as well, where you can pile some goals on, you start going into the, those games thinking, well, what if? What if they get on top of us? They're going to smash us on the scoreboard and you become intimidated by them and you start becoming reactive. Defenders, instead of getting adventurous and coming off and helping, maybe running to attack thing. Yeah, I'd normally do that, but this team's capable of kicking eight and a quarter. I don't think I'll do it today. Mm. And then you're on the back foot the whole time. So I love the fact teams are scoring because it can get inside the head of oppositions. So what did you see today in the way that Melbourne was beaten, Lingy? There have been contrasting ways that Fremantle beat Melbourne and then Sydney beat Melbourne. So Fremantle played 
an uncontested style, slowed it down when they needed to. Sydney really out Melbourne, Melbourne in a way, put the pressure on, suffocated them in the middle of the ground, didn't let them get any score from turnover. What did you see from Collingwood today? Was there a different method or a borrowing from other methods that have been used? I think there's borrowing from other methods. I, I mentioned you know four or five weeks ago, some of the games that teams play against Melbourne, uh, even when they don't hadn't beaten Melbourne teams, they were laying breadcrumbs for themselves or for other teams later on in the year to follow as to ways they can maybe beat Melbourne. Now they're starting to see it. People are getting confidence from it. One is around the contest. You're not going to necessarily smash Melbourne at the contested ball because they're too good at it. You've got Petrarca and Oliver, Viney, Harms. They're just relentless through there. But if you can break even in the contest, then the ground ball get contest, contested ball. Well, that takes away a huge part of their game. And then if you can put enormous pressure on them and cause them to just bomb the ball rather than link up and run the ball, well, their forwards aren't, as you mentioned before. Then There's no standout incredible forward, Charlie Kerner, who's just going to take a huge grab or, or Jeremy Cameron, who's going to turn a game. They don't have that. So they rely on more precision ball movement as they're going forward. So pressure's got to be enormous, turn it over. And then I think it's speed of ball movement. When that, when that ball is flying through the middle of the ground, and Collingwood did it a couple of times, where they're able to link up through the middle of the ground, wheeling inboard, a couple of handballs, get free, bursting through the middle. Jake Lever has to defend there. Uh, it means, and no, Stephen May, granted, is a, is a big loss, but it means all of the defenders, the Melbourne defenders, are playing as isolated defenders. Lever has to defend. Brayshaw had to, has to defend. Brayshaw was superb today, but he's forced to defend. Salem has to defend. And then even good, confident players like that, they start worrying and they start thinking, well, ultimately, I don't want to completely defend first i'm here to attack and create and set things up a little bit but now i'm stuck in really vulnerable situations so that speed of ball movement i think is the big one but you must at least break even with them in the contest if you let them win contest a ball by plus 15 and beyond well you're not going to get a chance necessarily to get that good ball movement against them so you can't have one without the other you mentioned Stephen may how do you reckon he would have been feeling today and and how do you think he should have been feeling today, given the events of the week. He was suspended um, after an altercation at a restaurant where he apparently had said a raft of inappropriate things, offensive things to teammates. And Jake Melksham stood up and said, that's enough, mate. And things escalated to the point where Jake Melksham punched him. Melksham not suspended, although he did have to go and have surgery as a result of an infection in his hand. But Stephen May, how should he feel about the result today and him not being out there and, and more broadly, his behaviour during the week and what he needs to get right from here? He should feel right now like he let down each and every one of his teammates. He should feel awful about today. And that's not to lay the boots into him. It's just a simple fact. He let his team down. Could you imagine Stephen May out there playing and, and part of that team and, and holding up some of those good Collingwood ball movements and being a really important factor in today's game. Of course, we could all imagine that, but he wasn't there because of his actions and because of the things that he said to his teammates or about his teammates. Uh, the, the things that he's alleged to have said, and I, I think we've had most of it 
confirmed or at least the gist of it, my blood would have boiled as well. If I'm in the same, if I'm in the shoes of Jake Melksham or Joel Smith or any one of those teammates, my blood would have been boiling. So he is, he's really torn at the fabric of, of that teammate bond um, that any team has and especially good teams have. It's a special bond with your mates. Al, it's the, it, it's the only thing I really miss about football now. I miss, I miss my teammates. I miss my mates. I miss the fun of sitting around a, a change room after a big training session and the banter and the laughter and the joy and the, and the little things seeing someone work so hard and the reward they get and, the, and, the, and going for dinner like they'd set out to do that night. The fun of actually spending that time together. That's the, that's the only thing I still miss about football. I want to be back with my mates again to, for somebody in such an important person and a leader and a good player to just completely rip at that fabric of what makes a United team. He's got a long way to come back from that. So and potentially, how, how damaging is it, Lingy? Culturally, does it, um, does it create any fears about what Melbourne is doing culturally when you have, as you say, someone who is such a prominent leader within that team and someone so important to what they do on the field to be involved in an incident like that off the field? How, yeah. how great is the risk of serious damage to the culture? And culture is such an important part of football. It is, and it's so fleeting at times. You can spend years building it, and then you can just let it, let it erode away. So, no, it, it is concerning. What I would say is now it's a really great test of the mental strength of the Melbourne players, coaches, the, the Melbourne Football Club, is if they can steel themselves around it and they can have some really difficult conversations and they can truly learn to a, a path to move on. It's not as simple as, yep, no, we're... You know, we've got, we've got bigger fish to fry. Let's get on with this. It, it, it's deeper than that. But if they can genuinely move on as a group and, and stay together and they can start playing good football again and they can start winning again and they can start, you know, rewarding each other and recognising each other for the selfless things they do, then you can actually turn it into a, well, we had this bump in the road and we were able to come through and it becomes a solidifying thing as a, as a group. But if the losses mount and the, the form of some players drop and the fingers get pointed and, and little things like that, a, a little crack can become a giant canyon very, very quickly. That, it's too good a competition. It's the best competition in the world at Australian rules football. We've got the best of the best football players, Australian rules football players going up against each other. So you're only talking about a couple of percentage difference between the best in the comp and maybe the 10th best in the comp when you open those cracks and you let them grow big you can it can bring you down quickly just as importantly as when you capture that that magic that lightning in a bottle sort of thing you can do incredible things with it craig mccray right now is doing wonderful things with this collingwood team on the back of what he's captured it ultimately is probably not going to lead to a premiership but it's a special spirit they've got around the group Right now, Melbourne are at the lowest point of their spirit, but they got enough talent, enough experienced people, they could get through this, but it's going to take some work. You've led nicely in there to the topic you wanted to raise, which is who is coach of the year? Craig McRae, you look at the results. Collingwood were six wins last year under a combination of Nathan Buckley and Robert Harvey, who stepped up when Buckley departed after that win over Melbourne at the SCG. 
You've then got Justin Longmuir, who surely is in the frame. Michael Voss would be another one, given where Carlton is, third on the table at the moment. And they're not in the same position on the ladder, but I do think you have to acknowledge the role that Sam Mitchell's done at Hawthorne in the early stages of his coaching career as well, first year up. So where do you sit, Lingy? Can I ask you first, Al? Let's have a philosophical discussion first before we agree on who may or may not be coach of the year. Is it more difficult and, and more impressive for someone like a McRae taking from six wins to ultimately what it might be, Voss from taking a Carlton down the bottom to, to where they're headed, or for a coach to keep a team at the top and remain extremely relevant, extremely competitive and extremely dangerous? Which one's the more impressive coaching? Is, is Damien Hardwick getting his team back inside the eight and dangerous uh, a good performance? Is Chris Scott back in with potentially taking his team to the top four again the more impressive? Or is John Longmire's performance? Which one do you believe is a more difficult coaching path for the Well, season? philosophically, I think what you've raised there is really valid because we don't assess those coaches that keep the teams at the very top we're looking for that um, bolter. We're looking for yeah. someone who's taken that massive jump with their, their team. And so in that case, you're looking at a Craig McRae or you're looking at a, a Michael Voss, for but should we be looking at Chris Fagan? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Who's gone from, what, five wins in his first two seasons, five wins each year, to now consistently playing finals and now having a team that is on the top of the ladder. Yeah. And, so, and, lost, and lost, didn't have Hipwood to start the year, then lost Danaher. And has had various other injuries throughout the year and has still got his team at the halfway point on the top of the ladder. That's an incredible coaching performance. So essentially, Lingy, you're saying, based on this philosophical debate, which I think we've got to the, we've resolved essentially, is that coach of the year discussion means absolutely nothing. It's the most subjective thing on the planet, isn't it, really? What we can say is who has coached well, who's done well with their team, who has kept their team at a very high level and maintained a, you know, a, a, an environment of success and who has taken their team from somewhere at a low base and taken them somewhere and, higher. And, I, and to me, if I was to talk about someone who I think has done amazing things this year, it's Justin Longmuir. Yeah, no, that, that's where I arrive at too. Now, I, I think as a body of you know, three years, um, Justin Longmuir from rock bottom to a genuine premiership yeah. contender and taking on some of the best teams in the competition and beating them. Longmuir has been unbelievable and all without Nat Fife, and then still being able to manage the circus that surrounds Nat Fife's return and all the media and all the hype and playing in the waffle and everything like that to then almost seamlessly bringing back in and playing good football on the weekend. I think Longmuir has been just outstanding. And I think if you look at the way that players have developed under his tutelage as well, as much as he's got assistant coaches who are, you know, Jamie Graham, I think, is an excellent assistant coach and deserves a lot of recognition as well. But you're seeing young players now at the point where Nat Fife is no longer close to being the most important player for Fremantle. Andrew Brayshaw's form is unbelievably good. And you look at guys like Caleb Sarong, I look at guys like Brennan Cox in defence and... Young, who was an early pick, but to see his development in the space of a couple of years, he was pick seven in 2019. To see him playing the way he is now, that that to me says that here's a guy who can develop players, but also who can put in place 
a style of play play that stacks up, Lingy, and wins games of football and makes your team capable of contending. And if you'd said to me, Al, at the start of the year, okay, here's the steps of Fremantle. They've they've finished, I'm, I'm just guessing here, 12th and then 10th, and then they might jump into 7th, maybe. But they've lost Adam Chera, who's their other Andrew Brayshaw potential comparison in the off-season. Nat Fife's not going to play till mid-year. And Perth, Western Australia, is unfortunately going to go through a COVID wave like we experienced on the East Coast 12 months prior. And there's going to be some extremely difficult situations with isolation and COVID protocols and everything like that. I'm like, oh, well, at the best case, Fremantle are finishing seventh or eighth. But, you know, with that sort of, with those setbacks, maybe they just miss the eight again and they finish 10th. And, you know, their best is years to come. So to jump through those sorts of little hurdles as well and to be sitting in the top couple on the ladder Mm. and we are sitting here going, yeah, they can win the premiership. (laughs) It's a remarkable year. Well, I'm quoting these numbers off the top of my head, but I think it is seven wins, 10 wins and whatever they achieve this year, Fremantle. And on the ladder at the moment, they're third with 10 wins already. I think it would have been a fair expectation for Fremantle to maybe jump to 12 or 13 wins this year and be contending for a top eight berth. As you say, for them to jump into a position where they are, you have to acknowledge they are a legitimate premiership contender and had demonstrated that even before Melbourne lost three games as much as they were part of that run of three losses for the D. So Brisbane's now on top, Lingy, but only by 0.2 of a percentage point from Melbourne, then Fremantle 10-3 and and Carlton 9-3. and So the Blues have played one less match. That's the top four at the moment. Is Melbourne still your premiership favourite? Yeah, dear. Yes, because I've seen them do it in the biggest of the big games, the way they blew the teams off the park in the prelim and the grand final. That's still sitting there. And that's still thing. okay, they can get back to that. Just the, the, the doubts are just swarming in at the moment uh, on, on what they're going to do. But let's call it a mid-season lull. Let's call it a bit of a mess. They can fight their way through Yes, it's still there, but the daylight's gone, as we know. That's, that's stating the obvious. Um, Brisbane, I've still got a couple of nagging little doubts. Fremantle, strangely, I've still got this weird feeling of it all seems too soon, um, as much as I still think they can win it. Carlton, it all seems a little bit too soon. Geelong, they've been there. They've done it. Their forward line and defence is excellent, but what's their midfield? So I've got, I've got just as many questions and nagging doubts about all of those teams that make up probably the top six. So Melbourne's the one that's still fresh in my mind of their September last year. So I still go to them uh, when you ask me that question. So yes, but gee, the last three weeks is starting to to create some big doubts. Well, football over the course of a few weeks, we can change our minds, Lingy, (laughs) just as you did today, because I was amazed to see, not really amazed because I know how objective you are, but someone who was so critical of Mason Cox and essentially yep. said he should never be picked to play again, voted him the best player on the ground in the Queen's birthday clash. You weren't the only one either, were you, Lingy? Albeit Clayton Oliver, who played superbly, did, did take the honours. But Mason Cox popped up and produced another one of his 
all too infrequent, but very eye-catching performances. Yeah, no, you're right, Al. I, I've got to, uh, I've got to eat my words a bit because that performance was outstanding. I mean, it was a four-year gap between the prelim final and this one. Um, but no, no, I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't spoil the party because he was the best. He was the most influential player on the ground today. I, I, I gave three votes to him, voting for the Neil Danaher Trophy. Three votes to Cox. Two to Oliver, who I thought was just excellent. Um, I was on track for about 50 or 60 touches at half time. And I gave one vote to Brody Majek for his four goals and big moments. Could have quite easily have been Jack Crisp. I was, I was tossing up those two. Um, but I was a little shocked to see Clayton Oliver get up. I thought everybody else would have had Cox as best on ground. I think Matthew Lloyd had him as best on ground as well. And then the third person doing the voting um, didn't have him in the votes, which was a bit of a surprise. So I, I thought, yep. Cox was huge in some of his contests. His goal, he kicked good on him. Fantastic goal on the run. His team got around him. Some big intercept marks in defence. Some big contested marks when he was needed for his team. Uh, he was brilliant. That, that is the game. You know what? I will eat every single one of my words, Al, if he backs that up and does that again and again and again. Because I, I want to see him succeed. It just got to the point for a sheer body of work where... You can't keep playing because of one prelim final four years ago. But I'm happy to be told to shut the hell up, Al. I don't mind if he delivers that next week and the week after that and the week after that. Um, good on him then because he was superb today. I think it illustrated how fair-minded you are, Lingy. So what are you giving him? 650000 a year over four or what, what sort of a deal <laughs> are you going with? Well, is our great friend Adam Ramanaskis still his manager? Because I think Rammer would be able to get a deal done like that. He's he could a... definitely get a deal like that, Rammer, knowing the way he operates. <laughs> and just on Rammer, there's a, something I wanted to mention from the start of the round, essentially, or going back to Friday night, was the eye-catching thing for me during this round was just that beautiful celebration and acknowledgement of history at the Essendon Football Club. And Ben Rutten's been big on trying to bring it back. And there are talks about maybe going back to Windy Hill and having more of that cultural element to the Essendon of old and connecting that to the, the group of today. Sadly, Essendon, you could see the effort was there, but again, beaten by a vastly better team and, and look a shadow of the side that they were last year when they made the finals. But the way that they acknowledged those that had come before, and I'm not certain it gets done particularly well or frequently enough that we look back and acknowledge the many greats who have come before, Lingy, to see those players out there and Dyson Heppel in the middle of it all, it was genuinely spine-tingling to see that. That was beautifully done by the Essendon Football Club, I thought. It really was, Al. Yeah, well, well said. And, and, and it was differently done too. It was really yeah. nice to see to, just the, the way it was done. I think Senator Briggs, is it? I'm not, a, I'm not a big rap fan or anything like that. I had to get my kids to tell me and explain. Uh, but I thought he was superb in his... Delivery of it, um, the way they acknowledged the different things, had some fun with it with Lloydie throwing the grass up was great. You're right, Al, about I, I love that moment when all those absolute legends of the Bombers gave the hugs to the team that was playing and then got in the circle. And I, I just for a moment thought, oh, please don't. No, this, I hope this doesn't come across right. I didn't want one of the older legends to deliver the, the stirring speech. Um, because they would have been outstanding. I'm sure they would have been superb. But I was pumped that it was Dyson Heppel who delivered it. It's, it's his time as the leader of the club. It's their time as a team to create their own history and to one day be recognised like these legends are. And 
even in the midst of those incredible Essendon people, I love the fact that he was the one delivering it to his teammates who were going to play that night and imploring the effort and imploring, imploring the spirit of the way that they were going to play. So I loved all that. I thought they backed it up. Yeah. I, was do, I was doing radio um, for ABC Grandstand on the, on the night and I, I did give the little bit of a, I'm probably a grumpy old, old captain here, but you're going to deliver something like that. You're going to look those legends in the eye and talk up, talk the talk. You'd want to deliver. And, and not have a pretty soft start to the game. And to their credit, they did. They, they didn't have a great system. Their boys going forward needs a heap of work. They, they've got some players who are just out of form, all of that. But the effort was there and, and the intent was there. And they, they found something on Friday night, Al, which was, which was important to honour yeah. those, the greats of their football club. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of work to do around game style and um, that's something that is going to evolve and... It seems like with the review, Ben Rutten is the man to, to see this group through into the, the near future. And they did show last year that they were capable of playing exciting football and playing finals. So let's see what the next sort of block of 10 or 11 games produces for the Bombers, if they can have a strong finish to the season. I love that on Friday night, Lingy. I have to say what I don't love, though, and I've been a little bit frustrated with this for a number of seasons now. It's the actual buy rounds. Week after week after week, we have three weeks where we have six games of football. And yes, you're at the mercy of the way teams are going sometimes, but some of the matches are a little unappealing, it has to be said. North Melbourne versus GWS is the sole game on a Sunday. This week, we have a clash on Sunday between Adelaide and Gold Coast as the sole game on Sunday. I just don't see why it is necessary. I understand that it's a very complex matter pulling together the fixture, but why we need to have only six games and it coincides with a period when we spread them out over a longer period of time. We go from this sort of continuum of football and we're really invested in it and all of a sudden you're sort of left wanting. You're wanting, and perhaps that's a, a tactical move in a way to, to, to spur our hunger for more, but... I think these buy rounds are flat. It's unnecessary. I hope that when Tasmania comes in, we already have buys. <laughs> when I say Tasmania comes in, we'll have a different way of structuring the buy that means that we have more meaningful football and not this essential lull in the middle of the season. Al, we will hold the discussion on uh, Tasmania and a 19th team and the depth of talent in Australia for another week. I, I promise it's we there, can have- It's we there, It's there. We can have that. Have you seen some of the players running around for North Melbourne and West Coast? I don't think there. It is there, but don't. We're not. We won't have that debate just yet. Anytime, mate. Put on the gloves, <laughs> Lingy. I'm ready to go. Um, on the buys, the the broadcaster, the free to air broadcaster of which we are a part of right now, Channel Seven, would not want a football free weekend. So you can't have every team having. No, I agree one, with that. One you wouldn't want that. Week off. So are you suggesting that the solution is over two weeks? Limiting- Structure it a different way. I mean, we've had an, an odd number of teams in the competition previously where one team had the bye. And if a 19th team does come, in, come into the competition, you could have maybe two or three teams having a bye every week and you have eight games every weekend. But to only have six and to have them spread out from Thursday to Monday, that, that to me, it just doesn't seem up. I also really dislike the, the buy heading into the finals, Lingy. That just seems to suck the oxygen out of the, 
the competition at the period when we're about to get the most interested. But I, I agree with that, Albert. Uh, on your point about the so you're talking about a bit of a rolling buy, teams yep. that buys in round five and seven and nine, or whatever it might be. Could you imagine the outcry though of the team who has their buy in round eight? Drawing a team in the yeah. finals who has their buy in round 16. But we're already talking about an uneven draw, Lingy, and there are inequities all over the place in this competition, whether it be the finances attached to some clubs, whether it be the crowds that they draw or the membership bases or the, the fixtures they get as a result of being big or small. So to me, it's potluck. Some years you're going to get a good draw. It's like a barrier draw at the Melbourne Cup. You get the good barrier or you don't. The NFL uh, in America, American football, they do it in the way that you're suggesting, where the New England Patriots might have a buy in, in week four, uh, but they draw someone in the playoffs whose buy was in week 13 or 14, and they don't care. They just suck it up and, and they do it. Um, so so it is, there is a model there to follow that. I'm probably more in the camp of if you don't like it over three weeks, compact it to two weeks mm-hmm. and have more games each weekend or sorry, more buys each weekend and, and get the teams the rest in a quick impactful one, probably timing it a little bit for school holidays in the middle of the year where a lot of people, people might be traveling or might heading away, might be going, whatever it might be. Um, doing it around that where you, you have a little lull, but you get that lull out of the way over two weeks rather than three weeks. I think it would be less noticeable if it was done over a longer period of time. So even if it was five or six weeks, but you only had two or three teams having the bye each week, it would feel like we still had a very substantial round of football. And I preface that by saying that I understand that the fixture, with all the elements that go into it, all the club requests, all the requirements around blockbuster matches, all of the television requests as well, it's a... It's a nightmare of a jigsaw puzzle to pull together. And Marcus King and, and Travis Old have done a, a really good job of it. I just think, though, every year I reach this point of the season, I think, oh, what's the game today? And you go, oh, there's only one. Or we've got to wait till 4 o'clock until the first game of the day. Or there's only one today and it's not actually a particularly good game. So, yeah, so I, I haven't necessarily presented a great solution. I just think it's a little bit of a flat patch in the season. You know what's going to uh, lift that flat patch, though, is this Thursday night coming. Yep. I, uh, I like the Thursday night footy because I can sit on the couch and, and watch it. It's a monster, Richmond and Carlton. So when you've still got, and, and today's game is another great example, when you've still got mixed amongst the buy rounds, huge games. Big ones, games yeah. With big ramifications, big clubs, big crowd, all of that. I don't mind the fact that I probably had a little bit of time to kick the foot in the backyard with the kids and didn't Nothing shoot wrong with that, North, mate. North Melbourne Giants game, knowing that I had the Collingwood-Melbourne one to look forward to. This Thursday night, I'll be sitting there on the couch, remote ready. That's a monster game. So that probably fixes up the odd dull game in the buy rounds for me. That, that should be an absolute cracker. They should get more than 21,700 there for <laughs> Thursday night football as well with any luck. That was a very poor crowd even on a wet night for a clash between two teams looking to, to keep alive their finals chances in a way as much as Richmond, I think, still would have had some chance if they'd lost. Uh, North Melbourne, you mentioned, Lingy. I did watch the North Melbourne GWS game and I thought maybe there was a, a sneaky chance North Melbourne could produce something. Mark McVeigh, though, has 
GWS playing a more attractive style of football, more proactive, similar to Collingwood, just moving the ball. Canelio's gone back into the midfield. I wanted to ask you about him because under Leon Cameron, he still played in the midfield. He got dropped, he got moved around, but he did play a lot of midfield time as well. So the significance of a coaching change for some players, how real can that be in terms of just that, that flick of the switch that they need, a different voice to bring out their best again? Yeah, it, it, it's, you'd say it shouldn't be important because you're a professional footballer, you're good at what you do. Just whoever they can get on with it. But the reality is something different. The reality is you just may feel better with a certain coach and not that Steve Cornelio and Leon wouldn't. It's probably not going to be my best example for the point I'm making, but you maybe just feel freed up or maybe for some players and it might be for Steve Cornelio, but it might be for some of the other Giants players. You just know that McVeigh maybe rates you higher in a certain area that you feel really good about and you have this new reinvigorated belief in your own game because you trust that the new coach feels the same way and you feel better. Or you might be put in a slightly different position at a better chance of succeeding. Like Cornelio playing, you're right, he played, still played midfield with Leon, but he's playing bigger midfield minutes. Mm. He's the type of player who might need um, 80% midfield, 20% somewhere else as opposed to 60-40 because he's going to work his way into the game at times. Um, I, I mean, the fact that Mark McVeigh's got them playing more attacking footy, I just sit here going, thank you very much. Like, hallelujah. They're a talented bunch. They can play the game. Let them loose. Let them go. And the back line's dynamic. They can move the ball. They can mark the ball. They, they're quick and they're mobile. The midfield's good. Let them play that way. Um, but yeah, it is, it's a subtle mindset shift, um, that can just reinvigorate things. Now I I was lucky enough to have that situation in a completely different type. Bomber was my coach for 11 years and I felt amazing under Bomber and supported by Bomber and just one of the greatest coaches. I, I could talk about him for hours when he finished and Scotty came in that feeling as captain of the club and experienced player been there you know, 11 years or whatever, to have that feeling of, oh, hang on a second. I've got to make sure I'm right on here. Pre-season is going to be big. My off-season, I'm going to be perfect because I don't know if this guy rates me. I, I've got no idea what his preconceived notions of me are as a leader, as a player. From day one, I'm going to, I'm going to blow him away with how impressed he is of me. Um, so that was a reinvigoration of, I'm ready to go. I'm like a kid again. I've got to prove myself to the coach again. So that's a, a different uh, situation to a coach getting sacked and, and the interim coming in. But you do feel it. You feel a need to really want to positively impress the new guy. And if he rates you and then you think, oh, yeah, actually, does he likes what I do, you can feed off that a little bit. So it, it is an important mindset thing. And Mark McVeigh is obviously capturing that with certain players. So should we read into it, Lingy, given that you only played one additional season and bowed out as a premiership captain under Chris Scott that you didn't necessarily impress him enough, mate? Or were you just, you'd had enough. It was time to hang up the boots, mate. Al, you've seen me try and make my way upstairs and just try and walk around these days. Unfortunately, mine was body related. Scotty, to his credit, Scotty to this day tells me there was a contract sitting there for me if I wanted to play on. Now... I don't know whether to 100% believe him because he might have just uh, like, oh, thank goodness I didn't have to force him out. There would have been. <laughs> but he, to his credit, 
He does not budge. He's like, no, nah, we had a contract there sitting for him. Thanks, mate. Until I, until my dying days, please let me keep believing that, Scotty. Let's touch on one of the huge stories of the week, Lingy. It related to Bailey Smith, one of the most marketable characters in the competition um, who he's been videoed allegedly behaving or is it essentially admitted to admitted indulging it, yeah. in illicit substances. There was a photo I posted as well of, of him holding a, a small bag of white powder and he's admitted, come out, made a statement and said that during the period after the grand final, he went to the Gold Coast, he indulged in the party boy lifestyle there, he let his life get out of control, something he deeply regrets. So I suppose there are two facets to the conversation here. One is around his response Two is around the impending punishment he'll receive. And I think it's pretty obvious the punishment he's going to get, given he will be deemed to have brought the game and the reputation of the game into disrepute, given that was the public nature of of all of this. So I think he's going to get a two-match suspension in keeping with what we've seen for Shane Mumford and also Brad Crouch for for similar incidents. But I have to say, in a a world or a, a generation where it is rare for people to genuinely put up their hand and say that they made a mistake and say, I did wrong, I think that there's something to be learned from from my experience here. And to do it in an authentic manner, I think you have to give Bailey credit for that. I think he got that part of it right, acknowledged his behaviour was stupid. Of course, he, he was foregoing his responsibilities as a role model. And that's something that every AFL player signs up to, even begrudgingly some of them. That's just the fact of life. If you... If you want to play elite level football, if you want the perks that go with us, you accept the responsibility of being a role model. And he's fallen short in that regard. And that's why the punishment from the AFL will come. But by the same token, I think his response to it has been almost, and whoever advised him, I'm sure he's been advised by people close to him, has been almost perfect in response to what occurred. I, I agree with you, Al. I, I do. I, I mean, it's such a... It's such a foreign thing for me because uh, I didn't have the same battles that Bailey Smith's going through um, mentally, emotionally, all of that. So um, it's hard to put myself in his shoes. I certainly never, never partook in any of that and, and just refused to have it anywhere near me, around me or anything like that. So it is very difficult to go, okay, when I was a player, yeah, I could have, you know, this, this could have happened and things like that. But that's just me. There, there's a hundred other different personalities and ways that people handle things and everything like that. And I don't understand all of those. And I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I do and think that every player should be just like me or they should have been just like Tom Harley or these, you know, these... Bailey's dealing with a superstardom a mm-hmm. giant profile, an incredible talent. Um, but he's a young man who's clearly open to making the same mistakes that other young men and women can make in society. Um, I'm with you in the fact that he's stuffed up and he's made some big, big mistakes and some really poor choices, but he's owned every one of them. He hasn't tried to run away from that. And there's something to be learnt from that. And there's something... Uh, I mean, I don't want to sit here and, and, and completely pump him up because he's made a mistake. Yeah, you, you can't make a hero of him for no. the behaviour, but you can acknowledge the response and the con- level of contrition, the genuine level of contrition in it. Yeah, I think right. it is rare to see people put their hand up and accept responsibility to the degree 
that he has done in the aftermath of these events. But he is in an age demographic, Lingy, where the prevalence of this type of thing, unfortunately, is so great. And if you are mixing in circles and, and let's face it, as much as he's a professional athlete, he is a full-blown celebrity. He, he, is, he's, he is living in the realms of superstardom, as you say. So for him to come into contact with this sort of stuff and, and to be pressured into perhaps, not sure whether he was pressured or not, but it being environments where this stuff's taking place is not the least bit of a surprise to me at no. all. And no. I can easily see how he would fall into that trap in the off-season in a party environment on the back of a disappointing result in a grand final and in a period of his life where he is not in the normal state of mind that he would be ordinarily he's admitted to having some mental health issues that that conspired to him um, behaving in a way that he now regrets so uh, the proof's in the pudding in the way he responds to this and it looks like the western bulldogs are going to be very supportive cotton on's a big sponsor of his they've come out and said that they'll also continue to support him we wait and see whether he will have some time away. I think he's going to miss, what, two weeks because of the headbutt and another two weeks, I think, on, on top of that from the AFL will be the sanction handed out. He's meeting on Tuesday with the AFL Integrity Office. So, And, and from this, there's further questions to be asked. I, I think a number of people are saying, well, does the AFL uh, illicit drugs policy work? You know, does the... The two-strike, three-strike uh, policy Well, Luke work? Beveridge himself, Lingy, has said exactly that. And... He was quoted in in the press today. Uh, none of us really feels at work, works, Beveridge said. Essentially, any player with clinically diagnosed mental health challenges will never be exposed to the policy anyway, because regardless of what you test, of when you tested, you're always going to get a pass. So that's a real, I suppose, chink in the actual process. I'm a big believer that it should disappear. So that was the coach of the Western Bulldogs speaking on that very topic. Yeah, and, and that's the question. It, it... It's, it's so prevalent and it's going to be used by a lot of players, unfortunately, sadly, um, as in illicit drugs. So if they're, if they're never actually going to get strikes against their name because of perhaps the mental health issues they're going through, then why have it? Maybe it's better off the clubs actually support and look after their players and, and provide the counselling or the environment where... Um, hopefully you can steer them away from and understand the mistakes that they make. The, the fear is, I think, from the AFL that, oh, yeah, but what if we end up with a West Coast Eagles of the early 2000s scenario where a number of players are perhaps a bit out of control with it? I think clubs are better equipped than ever now to support their players. They know the value of actually looking after their players. And I don't mean looking after by covering their mistakes. I mean looking after them and making them better people so that they can be really good players. They know they're valuable assets. So, so make sure that you're doing everything you can to support them and have them playing great footy. So if the illicit drugs policy is not there, then the only drugs policy that the players are accountable to is the WADA and, and the SADA um, drugs, which is the performance enhancing one. Um, because unfortunately, what we end up with too is a situation where too many people in the public confuse the two and say, well, hang on a second, he's using cocaine in the off-season. He should be banned for two years. Mm. Well, no, let's not get into the talk of whether he should or shouldn't be using cocaine. If you're using cocaine in the off-season, it's not a stimulant on match day 
and therefore performance enhancing. enhancing. So it doesn't fall the under... two things are completely the, separate. Yep. Completely separate. So if the illicit drugs policy isn't doing the job that it's designed to do, then why have it and create this confusion and, and mess? I'm a little bit more with Luke Beveridge that if it's not doing the job, don't have it because it's, it's a bit of a mess at the moment. Mm. There needs to be a mechanism whereby people, and we don't know the numbers of, of because of the very private nature of this, I think is it not until the second strike that you would ever be made have your name made public, that there's a, a mechanism for people quietly being identified and then getting the help they need to, to try and, if it's an addiction, overcome that addiction. If it's a one-off, realise that that's not the kind of behaviour that, that you can be undertaking as an AFL professional footballer. What you choose to do after you've been an AFL footballer is entirely up to you. But while you're in the public eye and representing the code, there are certain behaviours that, that you just can't be involved in. Uh, on the weekend, Lingy, I mentioned off the top the frustrated first round or first pick at North Melbourne. So we've seen this over a number of weeks. Jason Horn France is clearly frustrated with the way the team's playing. He's clearly a very talented player. He wears his heart on his sleeve. He wants to be part of a, a successful team. And it's not happening at the moment. Um, emotions spilling over to the point where a roundhouse right or a round arm to the head of, of Josh Kelly has resulted in him being served with a two-match suspension if he chooses to accept that. I have to say, and I, I said this with Bailey Smith last week, the, the grading of medium for the contact in the Bailey Smith case, I thought the Bulldogs had a, a case there. They could maybe argue a case and get that reduced to a week. I, I think that case is even stronger with Jason Horn Francis, given Josh Kelly played on with virtually no ill effects of, of the incident. It looked bad, I have to say that. If you look at it on the, on the optics, as you say, the optics tax, I think, may have been applied here again, Lingy. Yeah, I feel so too. I, I think they probably should try and get it down to, down to one week. Um, yeah, that's a frustration thing. What? I don't understand all the all the commentary around him and the surprise that he's frustrated. To me, he's in, when you're 18, you're pretty immature. So he's, he's dealing with being an AFL player in his first season of footy. So he's not going to get everything right anyway. He's playing in a team that is historically bad, horrendously bad. And he wants to be a star and he knows deep down he's capable of being a star. So why wouldn't you be a little bit frustrated and a little bit disappointed? Probably when he's seeing guys running around at other teams from his draft in much, much, much better situations, having a great old time. He's probably looking at Nick Dacos thinking, well, hang on, Nick Dacos is playing in this exciting Collingwood team. Craig McRae's got them really working as a unit and he's averaging or getting 30-odd touches a game playing in front of 80,000 people, um, potentially winning the rising star. And here I am, and we've got no chance of doing anything. And he'd be, he, the frustration's there, and he doesn't know how to handle it because he's 18 years of yeah, age. He's young. He's very yeah. young. Um, is it also partly, I mean, the, the commentary you're hearing, is it partly linked to the putting of contract negotiations on hold, the, uh, the public nature of a disagreement with a veteran of the club like Todd Goldstein? It, it just isn't a particularly good look as much as you see players argue from time to time and you want a competitive environment and you want players striving to get the better out of 
each other. There, there's a bit of a perception that Horn Francis has been dropping his bundle through the frustration, um, dropping his lip, and perhaps yeah. he needs to engage and, and take the advice of a Todd Goldstein, see what he can learn maybe from a, a, a veteran bit. player who's played over 200 games. Yeah, maybe a little bit, Al. They're, they're all really good points. They're all fair points. But also, <laughs> I don't blame him for putting contract negotiations on hold. Where's this team going to be in two years' time? Where's it going to be in four years? Where's it going to be in six years? What's the genuine direction? Are you going back to the draft and are we drafting um, another midfielder to support him, to go with Davies Uniac, to go with Simpkin, um, to go with Phillips? So are you going to go key defender because we're, we're lacking something there? What's, what's the look of it? And when are you going to add the free agency elements into this? Salary cap, what's it looking like? What's the support you're putting in place with assistant coaching? That might seem a bit big-headed and getting ahead of yourself as an 18-year-old to ask these questions. But these 18-year-olds are better prepared than I was when I first came in. They actually want to look at how can I maximise the success of me as a player as, as within the environment of club and team success. He's not an idiot. He's not going out there going, this is just about me. He wants to be in the, most, the best environment to maximise his team's potential and his potential. And that's okay in my mind. We celebrate... LeBron James moving around to go and put himself in the best situation where he can win titles and we, everybody loves him across the world. Why can't Jason Horn Francis do, be doing the same thing? Now, if people listening to this are going to go, you're an idiot for comparing LeBron James to Horn Francis. But you get my philosophy on young guys who are going to be stars. It's just clear because they're top couple of picks it's okay to sit and wait and ask, is this the best environment where I'm going to have the best people around me, where we are going to be playing in big finals in September winning and I'm going to be the best version of myself? I'm cool with that. I, I, I don't mind if he wants to ask those questions. Yes, he could handle the Todd Goldstein thing far better. That's one situation where he's showing his immaturity. Swinging of the arm and copying it two-week, that's frustration of an immature 18-year-old. But the idea that he can sit and wait a little bit and, and show me that we're going to build a really great team and a really great club in the years to come, I'm fine with that. And if North Melbourne don't step up to that challenge, well, bad luck. You, ne you never deserved him in the first place. And he'll go somewhere else and he'll go and have success. That's on you to make a great club, just as it's on him to eventually buy in to that club and, uh, and, and be a part of a really successful team. So I don't mind. I, I quite like that. that. That's the key part, Lingy. It needs the buy-in from him. Now, people can arrive at whatever conclusions they want from him not re-signing. He isn't obligated to re-sign with the club. This has been a thing that gets chucked into the public domain ever increasingly, but we never used to hear about you know, renewing contracts of first-year players in years gone by. It sort of happened organically. Now it's, oh, if they haven't signed at round seven, oh, he must be unhappy with the club that he's at. But I, I do think there needs to be some buying. And I'm a little bit old school with it as well. I, I think player power has become increasingly strong. And the minute someone is unhappy in an environment, rather than try and work their way through it or, or show some stickability at times, there's a, a bit of a tendency occasionally to go, well, I'll just go somewhere else because I can. And the game allows them to do that. There's not 
uh, the same amount of restriction on players as there used to be. And now we have talk about free agency expanding to the point where we could have a mid-season trade period. It's probably a broader conversation than just the, the couple of minutes we have left today, Lingy. But I'm completely opposed to that idea because I, I think there's already enough movement in the game. And, and to do it mid-year would be completely unfair to the teams at the top of the ladder who have managed their list well, who've recruited well, They've managed their injuries well throughout the season. If you could go and recruit a star player or a Todd Goldstein in the example of a, a Geelong or someone who might be in premiership contention, you could go out and grab a, a Todd Goldstein to compliment your list midway through a year. I, yep. I'm a little bit wary of the Americanism of the, the AFL and looking always to the NFL and the NBA for inspiration when it comes to how we legislate our game because... I know it's big business these days, but there's something authentic about the way we conduct ourselves, Lingy, and I reckon we need to stay true to that sometimes. You and I are in agreement with the mid-season trade and the the art of building a list and a premiership list that has to see you through the whole year. Absolutely. But I think my point still stands on Horn Francis is, yes, no, absolutely agree completely in that he needs to buy in and give his absolute all, which I believe he is. I think the frustration is born out of effort and wanting to get better and wanting the team to get better. But also the club has an obligation to be making the right decisions. Mm. Did we, we, we didn't see for a moment Caleb Sarong thinking about coming back from Fremantle when they were pretty rubbish in his first year because it must have been a clear vision. We're going to do this. We're going to add this element. This is what we're trying to develop. This is the midfield we're going to build. This is the forward line. Sean Darcy's going to be the ruck, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he must have had a real clear vision in his head like, yeah, absolutely. I'm not going back to Victoria. I'm, I'm completely committed to this, to Justin Longmuir and, and the vision of Fremantle. Um, there is a need. If I'm Just off the top of my head, if, if, if North Melbourne went out and thought, we're going to give up all of our early draft picks just to try and get in uh, a 28, 29-year-old um, sort of star who's just tipping over the other side. Well, if, right, I'm if they friend, do that, he can walk, Lingy. I'll accept yeah. he can walk if they go and do that. Yeah. But, but have those conversations with him. Actually bring him in on all of that. Not that you're going to declare your entire hand, we're going to go and pick this player at the draft, we're going to do this. But at least share your vision with him and your philosophy with him. Is No, we're going to the draft. We're going, we're going to use our number one, likely number one pick or number two pick. And then we're going to use this pick and we're going to draft this type of player. And we're looking at this, this uh, midfielder or defender or for whatever it might be. And just to put his mind at ease that they're not going to go and try and pick up four 29, 30, 31 year olds. And he's saying, well, what the hell? That'll give us a little bump, but not get us anywhere near the premiership that we, that he ultimately wants to be a part of. So bring him in on those conversations. Bomber used to do it all the time for us when we were young. He'd bring us in and he'd show us the pay bands of, of players and where they'd sit. And if we could achieve, you know, these players in these pay bands, you know, five players there, four players in the, in the upper bracket, we, we'd, we'd be able to keep a salary cap. We'd keep the group together for long enough when we had ultimate success. This is a vision I want to have. I want to have 60 games into you guys by the time this year's done. I want to have 30 games into them. I want 100 games into a Matt Scarlett by 2000 and whenever. He shared his entire vision with us the whole way. So there wasn't that moment of, where the hell are we going with this? It was, I get it. I get where we're going to get to as a group if we stay the course. So bring Jason in on that. 
and bring other Davies Uniac in on it and Jai Simpkin in on it and, and, and take them on the journey with you, with your philosophy and your vision. And I think they'll buy into it even more. Enjoyed chatting to you, mate. Slider number 21. You've been excellent. <laughs> Thank good you, chatting. Al. Been a great day. What a fun day it's been. Oh, so good. So good. Uh, and Thursday night should be an absolute belter as well, live and free on seven. Carlton and Richmond, the Blues inside the top four. Nine wins, three losses. And the Tigers just knocking on the door of the top eight but playing some good footy at the moment. So that's a great way to start. Round 14 we're up to. Can you believe it, Lingy? in this season of season 2022. Good to chat, mate. We'll do it all again next week. Thanks, Al. Have a great week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 